This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right. In sync, right? Or is it Backstreet Boys? Is that Backstreet Boys? In sync. In sync. Nicely done. I'm so glad that you know your boy bands. Well, I mean, I have to impress Heather Proberg, who I feel like would give me a lot of a hard time if I didn't get my boy bands right. She's our private equity reporter. She joins us on the phone from D.C. Are you impressed, Heather? I am. I was about to give you a hard time for saying Backstreet Boys. Yeah, but I said NSYNC first. I nailed it. I nailed you did. You it. I'm taking it. full credit. But he wasn't All right, sure. So <laughs> bye, bye, bye. I think we're using that in the B-U-Y sense. Uh, talking about Carlisle, uh, picking up some brands, teaming up with the ex-Dominoes CEO. Really interesting. Tell us what's uh, underneath this. Yeah, this is a partnership. So he isn't actually going to be working for Carlisle. But he's helping them sort of find companies that could be interesting, mostly in consumer to start, and then pushing the tech expertise on them, just like he did with Domino's. Is this a good matchup? It seems like it is. I mean, he's known for turning that company around. I think his thing was the hotspots where you could get pieces delivered to parks in different outdoor areas. And just the innovation is good for an old firm like Carlisle looking for ways to shake it up. Well, and Domino's, keep me honest here, was private equity owned at one point by Bain, I believe. So this is a company that has some familiarity with the world of private equity and a guy who at least understands sort of the levers and the way these guys uh, operate. Why brands? Like what's appealing to each of these uh, parties, interested parties about brands at this point? I think that's Patrick Doyle's expertise and sort of in the world of retail, Carlisle's always looking for niche investments. Jay Salmon heads that group and they do a lot of really interesting founder led companies, Mm -hmm. things you wouldn't even think of. Um, And they're just looking for new ways to get a leg up on all the other, on the other firms competing with this, uh, you know, mountain of capital they have. Am I right in remembering that Carlisle owns Supreme? They do. They're very secretive about that, though. Yeah. It's the ultimate flexor brand, as my kids would say. Like, we went to the Supreme (laughs) store on Fairfax Avenue in L.A., and there was we did not go in because there was a line out the door uh, to get in. But, you know, they've also owned uh, – Carlisle, I believe, owned Dunkin' Donuts at some point. So they are uh, brand-friendly, as you say. Definitely. Montclair, high-end brands as well. I do wonder, too, Heather, though, depending on where we are in the market cycle, if they're going after consumer brands right now, especially when we're starting to maybe wonder if things are slowing down, you know, questioning whether or not the consumer will continue spending, propping up the economy, I do wonder if their timing might be a little off. It could be. And part of what they're saying is they're looking for established brands. So in this case, they're not looking for these entry-level tech investments. These are companies that are already profitable, doing well, 
but there's a, a big hole on the technology front that could really drive sales. So I think they're looking for something very specific in this. And to your point, yes. I mean, we're at a, a late part of the cycle, and prices are very expensive. So they're trying to be creative here. Well, and interestingly, sort of pivoting to one of your other stories related to Carlisle, taking a stake in an AI-driven hiring firm, we also talk so much, Carol, about mm-hmm. this economy where it's very hard to find workers. We just had an interview yesterday with the head of Business Talent Group and General Assembly talking about training, especially high-end workers. Tell us about HireVue. So this is a, a company that would help really large firms like Hilton, J.P. Morgan, Delta Airlines with hiring. So they use artificial intelligence to assess different talent. There's a video interviewing component to this, and it's a good fit for Carlisle. They have a, a couple other companies that are sort of similar in nature. So, you know, and I wonder, too, how much pressure is on Carlisle and some of the other P.E. firms at this point? What are you hearing? What are you seeing? Because we constantly talk about the amount of cash that these guys have on hand, the dry powder, how much pressure to kind of start putting something to work? It sort of depends who you ask. Mm. Blackstone would say, John Gray would say, well, our investors are patient. We have time. But really, how much time do they have? I mean, they have a ton of money just sitting on the sidelines and everybody's sort of waiting for the credit market to blow up to get distressed investing going again. I mean, they really only have so many options. And if we're not going to just see them trading companies back and forth to each other, they have to look in different areas. Right. All right. Well, two good stories, as always. One of the hardest working reporters here at Bloomberg, Heather Pearlberg, on one of the best beats at Bloomberg, I say, as an alum of that beat. Private equity reporter for Bloomberg. Joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C., all things Carlisle. squeeze wow taking us back wow good pull if only dave wilson was here to appreciate that he would appreciate me that much more all right you're listening to bloomberg business week carol master along with jason kelly we are talking about coffee starbucks to be exact uh slumping the most intraday in more than seven months after the coffee chain signaled its profit growth mm, starting to slow john ehrlichman anchor of bnb bnn bloomberg's the open correspondent for ctv national news he's on the phone from toronto what's up with starbucks well carol you know this is that we're, we're now i guess officially moving into fall and now we have all these uh, high-profile um, conferences that are taking place, and Goldman Sachs has this big retail conference. And today, the chief financial officer of Starbucks comes out and basically tells investors that the profit growth the company had been hoping to see, uh, basically double-digit, might not be as strong as what they had had hoped for. Now, I, I heard Jason alluding to this. Maybe it's because you know Jason's family is just eating less at Starbucks. I have no idea. Uh, the other part of this story, though, is that they had some tax benefits this year, and uh, they also had been doing some stock buyback activity, which will slow down a little bit in the new fiscal year. So for a company that has been pretty hot with investors, that, that, that's the long and short yeah. of it right now. That you know We're in that season now where we keep talking about these profit outlooks and uh, this is a company that is tied to the consumer for sure. 
Well, I, what I was alluding to, John, is the fact that <laughs> my kids went bananas on the mobile app over the summer, which we're going to talk about in a second, the mobile app, not my kids going bananas. And now they're back to school, so I feel like maybe Starbucks is going to take a hit just based on the revenue that the Kelly family I was generating. Um, but talk to me about the, the mobile app, because what yeah. you are seeing underneath this is some real strength there, it sounds like. Well, you know, I, I find the technology story behind Starbucks to be just absolutely incredible. Um, you know, a lot of times people think of it as a growth stock. It's like, you know, it's in consumer discretionary. Amazon's in that group. Netflix is in that group. And it was up like 50% this year. Uh, David Nelson, a, a longtime money manager at Bell Point this week uh, uh, on BNN Bloomberg, described it as a uh, value stock masquerading as a growth stock because people get you know really excited about the growth and part of that is the app. So the loyalty program that Starbucks has right now generates more than forty percent of their sales in North America, and most of that comes to your point, whether it's the kiddies or the adults who are using the app, um, downloading it. The stat that I find amazing, uh, just 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 in terms of you know, just the evolution of these apps is that according to eMarketers, more than 25 million uh, people in the U.S. who are users of the Starbucks app. And and that's largely measured wow. through, you know, when you tap, at the pay, when you're using it for in-store purchases. And that's a bigger number than Apple Pay, um, Google's rival offering Samsung's. So when you think about the size and scale, and everyone would love that, right? Like yeah. how many how many different um, retail brands do you know that have a, an app? Uh, but it's just not registering, right? Consumers would, would, would rather use something else. So, so they've got something very strong and desirable there. Um, and I think that's why people got really excited about the story heading into this outlook from CFO today. All right. So what do we do from here? Like what do we need to be watching out for as investors? Well, I think um, there are a couple of things. Um, immediately, when we saw the headlines today, I think some people wondered about whether there was going to be some, some, some China announcement. Mm. Because let's face it, like one of the ways that Starbucks Carol has, has kept investors happy is they're very smart and selective about their stores. So they've, they've got the app. They're really focused on that. Then they are, they are vigilant about um, closing locations that just aren't working as well as they'd like. And then when it comes to expansion – it's less of a U.S. story and a lot more of a China story. I mean, they are opening big locations, um, a bold move into that market. Is that something that's going to slow down if the tariff battle continues? So you'll, you'll have to watch that. Um, <laughs> the other funny thing, I think, on the technology front, though, is that this is a company that people have gotten in the habit of using the app so frequently to change their orders. There's There's these stories of people like – adding 20 taps worth of vanilla syrup to their orders. It's gotten out of control. They, they now have to limit how many additional shots of, you know, sugary sweetness that you want in your drink because, you know, it's, it's when you reach that kind of scale, things get a little bit cloudy. And apparently some of the baristas have been getting uh, a little bent out of shape out of, you know, 
pumping an extra 20 uh, right. whatevers into your Starbucks drink. So working through those kinks is probably something to watch for as well. I, I confess that uh, I know a kid, not one of mine, oh, who no. who actually is like he, he puts a lot of extra pumps into his iced tea, but he likes using the app because then he doesn't have to say – he doesn't have to actually say That's the right. words, I'd like That's a venti iced tea with nine pumps or something <laughs> absurd. All right, John Ehrlichman, anchor BNN Bloomberg's The Open, correspondent for CTV National News. Great analysis of Starbucks and some woes, but some bright spots as well. Isn't that funny? So funny. That's crazy. Thank you very much, Mr. All right, so we got a little bit of a mini theme going here through the show, artificial intelligence. We talk about it a lot. We were talking about it earlier in the show as it relates to hiring companies trying to figure out how to use technology to better enhance a lot of their capabilities. Well, what about for investors and what about the asset management industry? We're going to turn those questions to Art Amador. He is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Equibot. Based out in San Francisco, but he's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. Hi, Art. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Great. Welcome back east. So uh, give us the the quick pitch on this. How did this come about? What problem were you trying to solve here? Yeah, so actually this all started at UC Berkeley at the Haas School of Business. Me and my two partners, um, uh, we were attending a, a class in hedge funds, and you had all these different strategies, right? And the individual with the background in AI and machine learning, what, what he noticed was that um, they dived really deep into a particular area or field, right? But with AI, not only could you go really deep in a particular area, but you could also go very broad, which gives you the ability to uh, weigh opportunities against one another and make better decisions. Meaning what specifically? So give us an example. So going deep and broad, meaning just more material information that like sh- lets you look at a particular what industry or what? Yeah, so it's 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 it down for us. Yeah, absolutely. So um, right now the system is analyzing more than 1.2 million. Uh, news articles, social media posts, uh, financial statements on over 15,000 global companies, uh, analyzing management teams to recognize patterns uh, across this data, um, both kind of looking in isolation and also in in combination how they relate to one another. And so how do you develop something like this? Uh, (laughs) A lot of hard work. Uh, We actually experiment. We started experimenting with um, IBM Watson um, back in early 2016. Uh, So we um, maintain a relationship uh, with IBM. uh, so we have our own proprietary AI algorithms that we've developed, and we have a team of uh, 18 engineers that are working on this uh, full-time. Um, and then the chief executive officer, he spent over 18 years at uh, Intel working in artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, and prior to that, in, uh, from an academic standpoint, you know, he's got a master's in electrical engineering from Stanford and, and from the Indian Institute of Science. So how did you guys link up? UC Berkeley. Yeah. So, uh, the two of us, and there's a, a third individual who is a uh, institutional portfolio manager by background. So okay. when I met him, he was managing about $30 billion um, multi-asset class portfolio for, for Apple. And then we got this Haas professor involved, um, Sam Uleski, that we all studied under. Um, so we were able to kind of combine the academic the, and the, the practical um, of both kind of AI and investing. Because you had worked in money management, but you worked at Fidelity, right? Was that pre-business school? That Give me the... The order of things. Yes, yes. So that was that was um, that was pre-business school. So I, I spent about a decade at Fidelity Investments, working in the private wealth uh, management section, uh, where I was responsible for a little bit more than a, a billion dollars of kind of ultra high net worth assets. So am I correct? So the ETFs up about twenty twenty one percent so far this year. Yeah. So we've got two ETFs. Um, as I'm looking of, at the uh, international equity. Okay. So the. It? 
Yeah, so the international equity is up about 19.5%, uh, which is incredible because its benchmark, the FTSE developed XUS, is actually only up about 9.5%. So you've got you know, over 10% beat to the benchmark. And then the other interesting part, too, is that the S&P 500, right, which is a U.S., it's, it's you know, mm-hmm. U.S. is up about 17.5%. So it's not only bested its benchmark internationally, but it's also bested the developed uh, or the U.S. market. All right, help me understand. So you've got, you're using AI and you're screening and you're looking at basically social velocity, right, in terms of social media and so on and so forth. Um, and then you're dealing with financial models. So is it equally weighted in terms of the financial screenings versus the social screenings when it comes to picking a name? Because you've got Toyota, you've got Nippon Telegraph, you've got Nestle, you've got Shopify. What is it that determines, bing, the bell goes off and this, this goes in the portfolio? Is it an index or no? Is it, It's pretty active back and forth. Yes, uh, it's, it's actively managed. Um, so it's trading about every single day. So it's, it's trying to make the best decision available. And so to get to so your, you're buying, so you're potentially changing the portfolio a lot? Yes. Okay. Yes. There's about, I think over the last 12 months, the turnover is about 127%. Wow. wow. So okay. it is, it is, uh, it's very active. So tell me social velocity versus financial metrics. It's a great question. So, so it's, it's data dynamic and the, and that's the kind of the beauty of the artificial intelligence, right? Is that the weights change. So sometimes the financials are more important. Sometimes the management is more important. Sometimes uh, the news information, right, sentiment, or the events that are occurring. So it's opportunistic. It is very opportunistic, and it's very dynamic in, in the way in which the, the weights kind of change. And that's the beauty of it, right? Because through machine learning, right, it's, it's, it's learning, it's adapting, and it's improving every day, so it's even better today than it was yesterday. So it's, but it's like being a trader, basically. You're trading on the news constantly. If you, you're telling me your turnover is that much, you're not one of those guys set it and leave it for three years, and it's a long-term play. Yes, that's a great question. So... Um, I think the, just kind of taking a step back, the beauty in our system, right, is um, it's really set by um, the human objective. So you know, we came up with what the objective should be. However, you know, we have large institutions that come to us with their own objective where they might say, hey, you know, the turnover should be this, right, the liquidity should be this, the risk constraint should be this. So we can wrap that all into whatever it is. So for this particular fund, yes, the idea is to recognize the companies that have the best opportunity for appreciation in the next 12 months. And so one of the things, just briefly, one of the macro issues you're obviously having to deal with, we're all having to deal with, is the trade war. So how do you adjust, especially given there's a lot of social velocity around uh, trade, trade wars, U.S.-China right now. So, so what do you do there? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the, one of the biggest um, challenges when it comes to big data, right, is trying to separate the signals uh, from the noise, right? And so that's actually where a lot of our, our intellectual property comes in to figure out uh, what information is meaningful, mm-hmm. which has got trust and what's got credibility. Now, to get back to your, your point about the, the trade wars, um, trade wars have caused a lot of volatility uh, kind of across the globe. However, there have been some specific countries that have actually benefited from that. So Canada, which is the largest weighting in the, in the portfolio, has actually done quite well, where over the last 12 months, the Canadian market's uh, actually shown positive returns, where the developed international, like the FTSE developed XUS, is actually uh, negative. Um, and then also think about Brexit. Um, right. With volatility coming in from Brexit, we are actually underweight uh, UK at the, at the moment. But I am curious, just 20 seconds, presidential tweets, is that considered noise or is that considered social velocity because it certainly moves the markets? It's, you know, so we have AI models running on um, uh, people, right? I think you were talking to uh, Carlisle earlier about that. Um, so understanding the person and their impact on the market is extremely important. So our models are trained to recognize 
how the market is perceiving uh, different signals. What's being rewarded? All right. We're going to leave it there. Art Amador is co-founder and chief operating officer of Equibot, based out in San Francisco, here with us in New York. All right, so in the special issue of Business Week that's on newsstands now, it's all about the elements. There are a number of great characters. It's one of the real hallmarks of this issue of the magazine, the magazine in general. But one that really stood out to me was a gentleman named Anthony Lipman. He's a metals hunter, and the headline says it all. Metals hunter scours globe to stockpile nature's rarest elements. Eddie Vanderwalt, he wrote the story. He's a commodities reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone in London. Joel Weber is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Eddie, uh, thanks for staying up uh, or staying a little bit late for us uh, here, although the news flow out of London, uh, I think, demands that all reporters work 24 hours a day, at least at Bloomberg. So uh, anyway, we appreciate it. So tell us about uh, this gentleman who you found. Uh, you know what, Anthony is a Anthony is a character. Um, he's 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 one of those people that are just absolutely obsessed with and in love with what he does. And what he does is he goes to the most far flung places that you can imagine and collects materials and elements that are that are exceedingly rare but extremely valuable to really big ind- industries. The one that he's particularly known for, he likes to trade in rhenium. Now rhenium is used. In the blades of, uh, of jet engines, and uh, it, 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 what it effectively does in there, it, 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 it causes the uh, blades not to stretch as it as it gets warmer. But the point is, this is it's 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 mined in places like Chile, uh, Kazakhstan, and so on. And what he does uh, is he goes out there, he finds these things, and then he can it connects you know these giant industries uh, with these materials. So. I kind of think of him as a professional squirrel. Like his job is to go around finding <laughs> rare things and then stashing them. And that little right. stash that he has ends up being probably incredibly valuable because his whole idea is like I'm going to I'm going to like corner the market on these real really rare elements. And once industry comes around to figuring out what to do with it, I'm the guy. Uh so, Eddie, when you um, and you were the lead writer on this, like when you guys kind of went through the examples of a particular time that this business model worked out for him, what was one that that really jumped out to you? Well, there was there was this one case where you know he he sort of he sort of got got a, he started off in the nineties after the Soviet Union collapsed, and he went to the Soviet Union and, and the former Soviet Union and bought stuff up there. But he got a reputation as a guy that knows how to find these rare elements. And then uh, at one stage, uh, he, was, he, he was connected with um, a Japanese company that makes scanning devices. And they came to him and said, look, we need some thallium. Now, thallium is not nice stuff. It's toxic. Um, it's, it's, it's extremely rare. Nobody wants to treat it. Nobody wants to own it. But the Soviets, he, say, he, he tells a story. He says, look. They liked their poisons, and they like they like to keep the stockpile poisons, and and they created some of this back in the eighties, and, and and it was found in a in in a, you know, it, it, somebody had moved it to a warehouse in Amsterdam, but then he had to find a way to get this to Japan, and there was, you know, this these these 
this material was packaged in old Soviet material and they had to bring it up to date, put it in modern packaging. And so it kind of, for me, it encapsulates what he does. You know, when we think of a metals trader, we think of a guy who sits in front of a computer screen and trades on the London Metal Exchange or on the Comix or whatever. He's not like that. He goes out there, he finds it, he transforms it in time, in place, and in, in, in form. He will, he will turn it into the type of material that people want, and then he will ship it off. But, you know, it, 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 he's, he says he's a merchant. He goes out there, you know, and, and, and collects this stuff and moves it, all of it. It's, he's just a really fascinating guy to work with. And how lucrative is this uh, role as professional squirrel slash merchant? <laughs> Only got about 30 right. seconds, Eddie. Look, they they do all right. I can say that. Um, I say he says quite openly his his balance sheet's four million dollars. So it's not it's not a it's not a vast industry, but he's the only guy, right? right. He's got a secure business. So I think I think he's happy. He doesn't have to call anybody boss. Yeah, it gives a whole new meaning to sort of cornering the market, he's right? Little, and he's cornered the periodic table of elements, which yeah, I kind of love, right? Like, right. I mean, not really the whole the whole table, and going but like he's picked it. little pieces. He's where cornered he can be a like, corner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like he's this is my corner. turf. You yeah. come to me if you need this stuff. I love it. Great story. Eddie Vanderwalt is a commodities reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone from London. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, he joins us every day around this time to bring us the best. Of the magazine. Thank you both so much. Here comes the story of the hurricane. So we are watching, of course, Hurricane Dorian. We talked about it uh, making its way up the U.S. East Coast. We're seeing uh, flooding, winds lashing Florida after really um, just uh, giving a tough time to the Bahamas, two-day battering there. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about it, the impact of it, and what kind con- kind of the data and the information of it, what it means to companies, because that's certainly something that IBM knows a lot about. Paul Walsh is meteorologist and global director of consumer weather strategy at IBM. He joins us on the phone from Armonk, New York. Paul, nice to have you here with us. Tell us a little bit about the work that you guys are doing, specifically when it comes to weather activities uh, and what companies need to do to maybe uh, implement certain strategies to protect themselves. Sure. And, and thanks for having me on, Carol. And Basically, what, what we do is we, we help companies understand and measure the impact that storms will have on their customers. Um, and that is becoming increasingly important because the impact of weather and, and especially weather forecasts on the way that we all sort of uh, react and live our lives is getting stronger and stronger. And it's really a function of the fact that weather forecasts are getting more and more accurate. Um, it's also a function of the fact that more of us are getting weather forecasts on our mobile phones every day. And it's also a function of the fact that more of us are talking about the weather on our mobile, mobile phones via social. So when you put those three things together, you can see that the weather has a, a, a significant impact on shaping what people are going to be buying, um, how they're going to be behaving, what they're going to be doing. And the other thing as it relates to the weather is that because it's measurable and because it's predictable and because using data and, and, and uh, analytics and AI enables us to then project forward not just the weather but also how it's going to impact people, we can then help businesses better prepare for these kind of storms mm-hmm. um, well in advance of when they hit. And so, Paul, what are companies doing differently 
now that they're armed with this sort of data that maybe they weren't doing before? Are they evacuating sooner? Are they investing more on the front end in terms of preventative measures? What do you see as the tangible reaction to this? Yeah, all of that. Um, And to give you some examples from a retail perspective, because I spent a lot of time working with retailers and consumer packaged goods companies, um, by doing the kind of measurements I had, I had sort of pointed out and be, being able to understand exactly what kind of products that, that they're going to need and how much of those kind of products they're going to need in advance of the storm, they're able to stay in stock with the right kind of products um, more so than they would have in the past. And so when you're able to do things like what's happened with, with Dorian, which is just an amazing forecast. I mean, that, forecast, that, that Category 5 hurricane was just off the coast of Florida. And that prediction was that it was not going to go into Florida. It was going to go up the coast. It was going to have an impact, but it would not have had – it didn't have the kind of impact it could have had. Right. That, and I'm just saying this as a weather guy. That's an amazing forecast. Knowing all of that and then knowing what that impact would be, then companies are able to um, do things that are um, optimized, that are uh, less sort of disruptive and, and more sort of effectively in terms of helping their customers. So it's a, it's a combination of uh, our, our – increased ability to be able to predict, but more importantly, our increased ability to be able to take that prediction and translate that into something that is meaningful for customers and citizens, and then building that into things like uh, outage prediction models and into uh, uh, resiliency centers where we're able to help companies uh, prepare to move their, uh, their cloud computing offshore, for example. So there's a lot of these sort of what I call digital resilience kind of technologies that are coming out of the fact that we've got just amazing data and amazing forecasts available to us now. But, and the point is, and the big payoff is, there's a financial impact for the companies that you're working with. They're directly seeing that, Paul. Yes, for sure. And, of course, you guys follow the financial news, so you've probably seen the term, the weather excuse, when companies come out and talk about how the weather Mm -hmm. impacted their sales. Well, increasingly what's happening is, is that companies are leveraging this kind of data you know, across, their, across their businesses, across both the supply chain and also what I call the demand chain. And by doing that, they're increasingly able to better um, um, and proactively react to changes in weather. So I predict that over time you're going to see fewer and fewer of those sort of weather excuse call-outs because the weather, of course, has a huge impact on, on, on business and on demand, but increasingly to the to the, to the extent that you can measure it, it means that you can do a better job of managing it, and I'm seeing businesses uh, increasingly doing that. So, Paul, uh, only about 30 seconds left here. Uh, what's the biggest impact so far from Hurricane Dorian that you're seeing? Well, the biggest impact, uh, obviously, is going to be in the Bahamas. Right. And that's going to mm-hmm. be a, a very, very significant impact. Uh, along the, the coast of Florida, it doesn't seem like the impact has been that significant, but I, I do think, based on the current track, that... Uh, we're going to see some pretty significant impacts in, in uh, Charleston and then the coast of North Carolina yeah. going forward. Well, and as you say, uh, the predictions have been pretty good on this. I'm not sure uh, maybe anyone fully anticipated how long it would sit over uh, the Bahamas. And as you say, just unbelievable devastation there. Uh, really, really interesting stuff. Paul Walsh is meteorologist and global director of consumer weather strategy for IBM. He joins us on the phone from lovely Armonk, New York. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. 
It's time for The Drive to the Close. Oliver Porsche back with us, Chief Market Strategist for Bruderman Asset Management. He joins us on the phone from the state of Connecticut. They're looking after more than a billion and a half dollars up there in Connecticut. Uh, Oliver, great to have you back with us. So help us figure out in technical terms... uh, what the heck is going on out there? Because I feel like the market, a little skittish right now. We had a down day yesterday, a little optimism today. We've got headlines you can't even make up uh, coming out of the UK <laughs> as it relates to Brexit. China trade still uh, on people's minds and making its way into the beige book. We talked about that earlier. So what's a guy like you to do whose job it is to figure out this market? Well, it's tough, but it surrounds around the various hotspots that we have in the world. So today the markets are up because obviously we got some positive news out of Hong Kong uh, and we got uh, some positive news out of Britain uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, the Brexit, the no deal Brexit is looking less and less likely Mm -hmm. based on Parliament's actions. So that's what the market is reacting to today. the way we look at it is effectively every central bank in the world is trying to do their best to support the global economy, stem the slowdown, and reinvigorate economies around the world. And every politician around the world seems to be trying to do the exact opposite by mucking it up. Um, and so, you know, that's the push and pull that you see. You see a tweet from President Trump. You see something coming out of Boris Johnson and markets panic. And then you see statements from the Fed saying or other central banks saying that they're going to loosen monetary policies and do what it takes to support the economy uh, and things rally. And that's basically what you're seeing uh, for the last few months. So President Trump tweeted, let me tell you, if I wanted to do nothing with China, our stock market, our stock market would be 10,000 points higher than it is right now. But somebody had to do this. And he's obviously defending his actions uh, when it comes to the U.S.-China trade back and forth. Uh, Do you agree with him? That if you took out trade, U.S.-China trade, that we would be 10,000 points higher, that the fundamentals would support that? Uh, Unlikely. So I think that there is truth in the statement and that if you take away the entire trade war and normalize the situation, GDP would be stronger, corporate earnings would be stronger, and that would translate, uh, barring any other events, into higher markets. Uh, Would it be, you know, 35, 40 percent higher, as he's suggesting? And I'm assuming he's talking about the Dow and not the NASDAQ or S&P, but you never know um, what he means. And so, uh, you know, look, the the trade war has clearly impacted the global economy. It has impacted the U.S. economy. We have effectively 2% GDP growth. It'd probably be 3% GDP growth if it wasn't for this and the insecurities that it's creating. So there's truth in it. But again, this is a, a, you know, self-inflicted wound and they cut just as deep as any other. And so, Oliver, let's turn to the Fed if we can, because you know we're hearing from a couple of Fed speakers, Jim Bullard, I believe, saying maybe we need a 50 basis point cut. That's a reversal, almost 180 degree, 80 degree reversal from what he was saying a month or so ago. We've got you know this series of op eds from former New York Fed President Bill Dudley, you know 
mm-hmm. staunchly defending uh, Fed independence, clarifying some of his statements that he made in an op-ed here on Bloomberg. What position is the Fed in here, and what do you think they need to do next as we get closer and closer to the next meeting? So I think it's it's uh, overwhelmingly likely that they will lower by another 25 basis points. Um, the truth is, whether they lower by 25 basis points or 50 basis points, is not nearly as important as whether or not this is going to be a sustainable set of actions. Hmm. At the end of the day, we're still very low on interest rates. You've got a sub 1.5% 10-year Treasury. And the impact that that is having on savers, on fixed income investors, which is a, a large portion of the population as baby boomers retire, is significant. And that creates a very problematic situation for the Fed. Because they're clearly aware of the demographics. They're aware of the fact that, you know, should the 10-year Treasury go below 1%, that becomes a problem in itself. And some are talking about negative yields coming. I mean, Alan Greenspan said that it's a matter of time. Uh, we don't necessarily agree with that. But these are real structural issues that the Fed has to contend with. Look, dissent amongst Fed governors is not unusual. The only thing that's relatively new is the speed by which they're able to communicate their uh, their views, whether that is online, through social media, or interviews. Everything is disseminated at lightning speed these days. Um, so, you know, to us, it's really a question about what is the long-term trajectory of the Fed, and how are they going to address the demographic shift, shifts and the risks of the, of a disinflationary environment uh, that could very much well come. With given everything that's that's happening, and your portfolio right now, your overweight fixed income, your overweight cash, uh, but you are down cash from late December. Uh, it doesn't sound like you're too nervous or too worried about an inflate. Uh, excuse me, a recession being just around the corner, or are you? Well, you know whether you call it a recession, an earnings recession, a slowdown. You know we think we're going to kind of tinker along. We don't see a catalyst given the push and pull between, you know, monetary policy and fiscal policy and what governments are doing, uh, meaning politicians are doing, as particularly high risk for equities. In other words, yes, you can see a correction, but it's unlikely to be a prolonged or steep correction. Mm -hmm. We also don't right now see any catalyst as to why stocks would make new all-time highs anytime soon. So we want to be a little bit more conservative. We want to have a little bit of dry powder, uh, you know, in, that, that we can deploy. Um, but we want to remain largely invested because, you know, there's still positive returns to be made out there. Right. All right. We're going to leave it there. Good stuff. Oliver Porsche is chief market strategist for Bruderman Asset Management, uh, managing more than a billion and a half dollars up there in Connecticut. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.